I'm sure you've also had the experience of um, feeling like you've bitten off more you can chew than you can chew, yes, in life. Uh, well, this morning's passage might be an example of such a thing, and you might have had that experience in growth group during the week. Not easy to get through uh, a passage like that uh, in an hour and a half together during the week, uh, and certainly not in half an hour or so uh, this morning. Going to need God's help, uh, so let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for this part of your word that um, introduces uh, some things that we don't often uh, give much thought to, uh, both in terms of uh, uh, characters from the Old Testament, uh, this Melchizedek in particular, uh, but also perhaps, um, yeah, the, the practice of confession of sin, um, making the most of the access that Christ has won for us to you. So we pray that uh, you would work through this time together now and uh, help us uh, to do what is, is good, uh, and that is to spend more time in your presence uh, seeking you for the help that we need. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a number of things in life uh, that uh, experiences that we know we need uh, but we tend to avoid. Now, far be it from me to uh, perpetuate a, uh, an unhelpful stereotype, but uh, going to the dentist uh, could well fit in this category for some of us. Perhaps not all of us, uh, but for some of us. Uh, and I think there could be uh, you know, kind of two types of person when it comes to avoiding the dentist. There's the person who thinks, I have super teeth, and uh, I just don't need the dentist. Uh, and then there's the person who is aware that their teeth are very vulnerable and they probably need the dentist, but they're just very fearful of what will happen uh, when they go to the dentist. And all this is in spite of the fact that we know that our dentists are very well-qualified people. They get the best education uh, and are well-equipped for the job. They want what is best for us. Uh, we live in a country where it's actually a privilege to have good access to dental health and dental hygiene. And yet, in spite of all these things, some of us at least still dread the thought and therefore perhaps even don't take up the opportunity, as we should, of seeing uh, the dentist. Now, I wonder if something like that might also exist when it comes to spending time with God. When it comes to keeping those appointments uh, with God, particularly when it comes to spending time with God for the purpose of dealing with our sin, of being honest with God about our sin. And not just our sin uh, when, when we've committed sin, but also even before we do, when we experience temptation to sin, whether we stay away from God at those times rather than actually approach him as not only we should but as we can because of what Jesus has already done for us. I think this uh, passage, uh, Hebrews, the end of chapter 4 all the way through to chapter 7, is a great help for us in understanding, first of all, how great Jesus is in his achievement as our high priest so that when we appreciate how great he is and the greatness of what he's achieved, we will actually make use of it. We will enjoy what he's achieved for us. 
even though if we didn't understand those things, we might see it as something that is very far from something we could enjoy. So let's uh, dive in and see how the author, uh, the writer to the Hebrews, uh, explains all this to us. Uh, He does a very comprehensive job, and uh, as he uh, is wont to do, he does it through a comparison, uh, comparing the Old Testament system that God set up uh, to Jesus himself, showing how uh, Jesus is uh, the better and the final uh, fulfillment of all that came before. So the first stage in God's plan uh, to deal with sin was the appointment of the priests and of the sacrificial system for Israel, for his people. Uh, And in chapter 5, verses 1 to 4, we read about that appointment. Every high priest, it says there, is selected from among the people and is appointed to represent the people in matters related to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray since he himself is subject to weakness. This is why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins as well as for the sins of the people. So that's the role of the priest, as it says there, to represent the people in matters related to God and to offer sacrifices, gifts and sacrifices for sins. And represent uh, is a key word there. Uh, It wasn't possible for the people because of their sin. It wasn't possible for them to themselves approach God directly. Uh, They were shut out, cut off uh, because of sin. Uh, Holy God uh, had to be removed from a people uh, who were less than holy and sin caused that situation. But God enabled a representative One person, a group of people, the high priest, one person in particular at certain times, to be their go-between, their mediator, their representative. And his job was primarily to deal with this problem that sin had caused, this this gap, this break in relationship. To offer gifts and sacrifices. Their job was a, a bloody business, to be quite honest. Lots of blood scattered here and there as animals were killed as sacrifices uh, representative of the the covering over, the dealing with uh, of sin. But the goal of all this uh, was to actually help Israel appreciate how serious sin was. If you imagine yourself in that situation where sin had to be paid for and you had to make an offering, a sacrifice because of your sin, a substitute had to, be, had to be prepared in your place, sin would be pretty real to you at that moment, wouldn't it? You would understand how serious it was. But the priestly system and the sacrificial system also pointed the people to how committed God was to them, to not giving up on them, to still enabling relationship in spite of sin. God was not going to turn his back on his people. Rather, he was going to make provision. He was going to make access possible, even though it was in this mediated way. So the priesthood and the sacrificial system were actually a good gift from God, enabling relationship in spite of sin. But the role of those Old Testament priests uh, definitely had limits. 
the main one being that this, this priest was a middleman and the majority of the people had to stand back at a distance and let him approach God. Now, at this point, uh, we might expect uh, our author, the writer to the Hebrews, to do what he always does and show how Jesus is better than this human high priest under the old covenant. And well done, full marks, that is what he does. But he does it in a way that might seem to us a very strange and roundabout way. And that is by spending a lot of time talking about a guy called, not Jesus, but Melchizedek, hard name to say, let's just call him Mel. Why? Why so much time devoted to really a quite obscure Old Testament figure? In fact, only three verses in the entire Bible uh, tell the story of Mel. Uh, Way back in Genesis chapter 14, uh, verses... I haven't got, uh, 18 to 20. Why spend so much time thinking about Melchizedek? Well, here's the reason. To be a priest in Israel, you had to be a descendant of Levi. Levi was one of the 12 sons of Joseph, and uh, they were uh, selected in Exodus 32 after a dreadful episode of uh, unfaithfulness as after Israel was given the law and they turned away from God immediately uh, while Moses was up on the mountain, they sacrificed to the golden calf and all that happened. And uh, the Levites played a crucial role in drawing the people back to God. You can read about it in Exodus 32. And in that moment, the Levites were appointed as people who were prepared to shed blood for the glory of God. And that ended up being their job as Levitical priests. So to be a priest, you had to be a descendant of Levi. And to be a high priest, well, you actually had to be a descendant of Aaron. So uh, Aaron, the brother of Moses, uh, was appointed the first high priest and, it was his, and his sons uh, followed after him. In fact, not even the king of Israel was allowed to take on the role of priest Uh, something that their first king, Saul, uh, discovered, learned, when he tried that, when he attempted that. I'm not sure if you know that story, but uh, he was uh, waiting uh, to to attack uh, a foe, uh, but he was waiting for Samuel, the priest, to turn up and make the relevant sacrifices so that they could express their dependence on God in this, to win this battle for them. Saul's looking at his watch and waiting and waiting and waiting the prescribed time and still Samuel doesn't turn up and he thinks, well, I'll have to do this myself. And he makes the sacrifice himself and, of course, as he does it, Samuel turns up. He's found out for taking on this role and even though he's the king, Samuel says, you'll be king no more because uh, you're presumed uh, to take on a role that is not yours. Uh, only, Only a Levite can can do this and here's the problem uh, when it came to the the early church Jesus was not a descendant of Levi Do, do you sense the problem that that causes especially for 
people who were Jewish Christians, that is, people who had, uh, you know, accepted that Christ was the Messiah but had come from that uh, Israelite heritage. Jesus was not a descendant of Levi, let alone of Aaron. Jesus was from the tribe of Judah. And we see that over in chapter 7, verses 13 to 14, where it says, He of whom, that is Jesus, he of whom these things are said belonged to a different tribe, and no one from that tribe has ever served at the altar. For it is clear that our Lord descended from Judah, and in regard to that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. In other words, Jesus, in terms of his lineage, did not qualify to be a priest. So how could Jesus offer the necessary sacrifice, as Christians believed, uh, that was acceptable to God and that would make uh, Christians acceptable to God? This is a very awkward kind of situation uh, to try to explain. It's like, do you remember a few years ago, uh, there was that rash of Australian MPs who discovered that they had dual citizenship and were actually disqualified as a result because of their lineage, in a sense, from holding office? Well, it's just like that. Is Jesus going to have to hand in his, his card? You know, Is he disqualified? Well, the right solution to that problem is that far from disqualifying him from the role, Jesus has an alternative lineage, an alternative heritage that is exactly what qualifies him to be the high priest of a new and better covenant than the old covenant. How does that work? Well, here comes Melchizedek. See, what the writer does is he locates prior even to the establishment of the priesthood, a precedent. And he finds him in Genesis 14, 18 to 20, uh, in the form of Melchizedek. So let me read uh, those, those verses to you. Uh, I'll start from verse 17. After Abram returned from defeating Ketelamah and the kings allied with him, the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley. And then Melchizedek, First mention ever, never heard of him before. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, or Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and praise be to God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And that's it. Never heard of again. Never heard of before. Never heard of again. So why make such a big deal of him? Well, in these three verses, the writer finds for Jesus and his priesthood the perfect precedent. Because Mel is, as we read, priest of God most high. Though he is not a Levite, he couldn't be because Levi hadn't been born yet, And he's not even, in fact, an Israelite because Israel had not been born yet either. Abraham uh, came before Isaac and Jacob. So God was at work somehow uh, in another people, at least in this other king, uh, who was his priest. 
And he is not just a priest, but also a king. As it says in chapter 7, verse 1 of Hebrews, this Melchizedek was king of Salem and priest of God Most High. And not just any king, but a king whose name has significant meaning. Melchizedek translated literally means king of righteousness. Now that's an interesting name. And his title, King of Salem, means King of Peace. Again, it's there explained in chapter 7, verse 2. A priest king, therefore, who ruled over a place called Salem, which later became known by a name we're more familiar with, Jerusalem, the site of both Israel's temple and its royal palace the home of its priests, and the home of its king. Mel is a true precedent in every sense of that word. He preceded not only Jesus, but also Levi, which is uh, explained there in chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. Uh, The author explains that in the paying of a tenth, You know how Abraham paid a tenth of the plunder from uh, the battle that he had just won? Uh, One might even say that Levi, who collects the tenth, so so the priests uh, uh, would collect a tenth, a tithe from the people for their ministry. But he says, one might even say that Levi, who collects the tenth, paid the tenth through Abraham because when Melchizedek met Abraham, Levi was still in the body of his ancestor. It's like those babushka dolls, you know, those Russian stacking dolls, the nesting dolls. Uh, Levi is still inside a few layers and you get out to Abraham and Abraham's the one that pays the honour, you know, that, that, uh, that tithe to Melchizedek. And so the author is making the case that that there is this earlier and greater priest by the name of Melchizedek, a priest who preceded the priesthood, a priest who preceded the sacrificial system and preceded the old covenant and who, did you notice, for some unexplained reason, brings out bread and wine. The two things that Jesus later used to establish the new covenant and to represent the final and once-for-all sacrifice by which he became priest forever, his body and his blood. As the psalmist foretold, a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And so yet again, the writer turns what many would have seen and did see as a weakness when it came to Jesus into a strength. He's done this before, he did it concerning the angels, remember that, that idea that perhaps because Jesus had taken on flesh and blood, he became less than the angels. But the, the writer says, no, no, in taking on flesh and blood uh, he, and giving up that flesh and blood, he is exalted above the angels. Well, so being a priest in the order of Melchizedek not only validates Jesus as a priest, but actually reveals the superiority of his priesthood over that of the old covenant. So why does any of this then matter for us? Because we're a bit removed from it all, aren't we? We're so removed from that old covenant system of 
priests and particularly of sacrifices that maybe it doesn't land very strongly for us. Well, here's how uh, the writer to the Hebrews explains it to his audience and God to us through him. Now that Jesus has this role, now that Jesus, through his sacrifice, has become our great high priest, as it says in chapter 6, verse 18, uh, God did this so that by two unchangeable things, that is the promise and the oath, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us, fled to Jesus, may be greatly encouraged See, see, God wants the priesthood of Christ to be a great encouragement for us because we shed no blood. We don't gather to shed blood because the blood for us has already been shed and as a result our sins are forgiven without the shedding of further blood. It's actually the absence of something that should strike us. The fact that we no longer have to do these things because Christ has, also, has already done them for us. Our need for a priest to represent us before God has been met. There is no high priest here today offering sacrifices. There is no need for a weak fellow sinner to repeat powerless sacrifices day after day, week after week, and year after year, because the holy, blameless, pure and exalted Son of God has offered himself as the once-for-all sacrifice for our sins. And so in chapter 7, verses 18 and 19, we see that that former way is set aside and a better hope is introduced by which we are to draw near to God. See, that's the privilege that the world has never had until Christ came along to offer it to you and I. But my question for us here today, and what the author is urging his readers to do, is to take hold of that privilege. The, the writer urges his readers to draw near to God right back at the start of the passage. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet did, he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence. Let's draw near so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. And I think in particular, in the context, we are to draw near to God when we are tempted to sin and when we give in to sin. We're encouraged here to draw near to God to deal with sin or to uh, receive the grace of God who has dealt with our sin. That's the privilege, but do we use it? I suspect, and I'm obviously not claiming this for every one of you, but I suspect that most of us 
don't make the most of the privilege. Jesus has entered behind the curtain, it says, and he always lives to intercede for us. He has opened up the way for us to draw near, but I wonder if now, even though the way is open, it's us who are keeping him at arm's length. Are you content with kind of nodding at God from a distance? You know how you do that? You see someone, don't really want to talk to them, don't really want to catch their eye. I wonder if that's us, particularly when it comes to dealing, being real with God about our sin. And I wonder if this is because we're confused about our sin and about what Jesus has done for us. So think back to what I was saying about the dentist and the kind of two types of reasons someone might not go to the dentist. I wonder if many of us in regard to our sin think, well, I don't see the problem. Jesus has paid for our sin, I know that. So doesn't that mean that sin's no longer a problem? Dealt with? Of course, in one sense it does mean that sin is no longer a problem, in that it is no longer counted against us. But we would be fools to think that sin is no longer an issue in our lives. I mean, that's just kidding ourselves. And perhaps even trying to kid God. See, if we think like that, then we won't treat our sin seriously. We won't battle temptation. We won't do what that song, our first song said, yield not to temptation, but fight against it. We won't confess our sin to God. But on the other hand, maybe some of us are in the other camp. Maybe some, some of us are overwhelmed by our sin. Maybe we know that it does really matter and the guilt and the shame that we feel for our sin keeps us distant from God. Folks, if you're in one of those camps, you recognise that you might fit that character or perhaps even both of those camps at different times, we need to remember what any sacrifice, but especially the sacrifice of Jesus is meant to make clear in the most powerful way. Firstly, sin does matter. How can we believe that God sent his one and only son into the world and then not only allowed him but led him to the cross to give up his life as a sacrifice for sin and think that sin is a small thing as if it doesn't matter. We must see in the sacrifice of Jesus how serious and real sin is. But as well as that, we need to see how committed God is in enabling us to really, truly, honestly deal with our sin. Jesus, our great high priest, has made a permanent sacrifice for our sin and therefore makes it possible for us to draw near to God as sinners. Yes, forgiven, but still as sinners with our sin, approaching God's throne of grace with confidence. It shouldn't be possible, but it is. 
By providing the sacrifice for our sin, Jesus paid the penalty so that we can draw near to God to find his mercy and grace and to find the help that we need to battle temptation and confess our sin and at the same time enjoy his constant acceptance and the sure hope that he will never turn us away. Do you see how good it is? Do you see, do you see what we're meant to do? Not just kind of tick a box and say, Christian, all good, see you later, see you in heaven, God. But rather to recognise that God's grace is for us every day so that we can grow in his grace rather than fall away. And I think that's where chapter 6 comes in. You know, chapter 6 and that warning there about falling away. See, the thing is, if we are not making use of the opportunity that God has won for us in Christ to go to him, to move towards him with our sin, then the opposite will happen. See, there's no such thing as a static Christianity. We're either moving towards Christ or we're moving, falling away from him. So be warned. It's not a small thing to treat as a small thing the priestly work of Christ, the permanent priestly work of Christ. We need to keep moving towards him and accessing him as our great high priest. And that's when we will hold firmly to the faith we profess. We will approach his throne of grace with confidence. We will drink in the rain. We will flourish in the grace and the mercy of God. We will make progress. We won't remain as babies on milk, but we will become teachers of others, helping them follow us as we head to Christ. We will train ourselves by constant use, as it says in chapter 5, verse 14. And we will look to those who have gone before us and imitate their faithful and patient perseverance as they have grown up in Christ as well. Let's pray that rather than shrinking back from God, rather than falling away because we don't want to deal with our sin, we understand that we have a great high priest who always lives to intercede for us so that we will keep moving towards God with our sin and our temptation and our struggles and battles and find the mercy and help that we need in our time of need. Let's pray. Our Father God, there are many things in life that we don't feel like doing, that seem hard, that perhaps make us feel awkward. Father, please, by your grace, enable us to see how Christ has given his life so that we can be honest and real with you about our sin and our temptation and our struggles without any fear of condemnation or recrimination. Father, free us from whatever might stop us from moving towards you in order to experience your grace and mercy 
and to know uh, in a very real way your forgiveness through Christ. Help us to allow him to play his full role as our permanent intercessor, the one who will always establish our relationship with you and even grow us in it. Help us not to shrink away from confessing our sin and seeking your help in temptation, but to keep moving towards you and having our faith strengthened as we do. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.